Part 2, Chapter 3 of The Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Orty. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part 2, Chapter 3. I awoke that night with a sudden panic that I must instantly see Vera. I, even in the way that one does when one is only half awake, struggled out of bed and felt for my clothes. Then I remembered and climbed back again. But sleep would not return to me. The self-criticism and self-distrust that were always attacking me and paralysing my action sprang upon me now and gripped me. What was I to do? How was I to act? I saw Vera and Nina and Lawrence and behind them, smiling at me, Semyonov. They were asking for my help, but they were, in some strange, intangible way, most desperately remote. When I read now in our papers shrill criticisms of our officials, our cabinet, our generals, our propagandists, our merchants, for their failure to deal adequately with Russia, I say, deal adequately? First you must catch your bird, and no western snare has ever caught the Russian bird of paradise, and I dare prophesy that no western snare ever will. Had I not broken my heart in the pursuit, and was I not as far as ever from attainment? The secret of the mystery of life is the isolation that separates every man from his fellow. The secret of dissatisfaction, too, and the only purpose in life is to realise that isolation and to love one's fellow man because of it, and to show one's own courage like a flag to which the other travellers may wave their answer. But we Westerners have at least the waiting comfort of our discipline, our materialism, of our indifference to ideas. The Russian, I believe, lives in a world of loneliness, peopled only by ideas. His impulses towards self-confession, towards brotherhood, towards vice, towards cynicism, towards his belief in God and his scorn of him, come out of this world, and beyond it he sees his fellow men as trees walking, and the mountain of God as a distant peak, placed there only to emphasise his irony. I had wanted to be friends with Nina and Vera, I had even longed for it, and now at the crisis, when I must rise and act, they were so far away from me that I could only see them like coloured ghosts, vanishing into mist. I would go at once and see Vera, and there do what I could. Lawrence must return to England, then all would be well. Markovitch must be persuaded, Nina must be told. I slept and tumbled into a nightmare of a pursuit down endless streets of flying figures. Next day I went to Vera. I found her, to my joy, alone, I realised at once that our talk would be difficult. She was grave and severe, sitting back in her chair, her head up, not looking at me at all, but beyond, through the window to the tops of the trees, feathery with snow against the sky of eggshell blue. I am always beaten by a hostile atmosphere. Today I was at my worst, and soon we were talking like a couple of the merest strangers. She asked me whether I had heard that there were very serious disturbances on the other side of the river. I was on the Nevsky early this afternoon, I said, and I saw about twenty Cossacks go galloping down towards the Neva. I asked somebody and was told that some women had broken into the baker's shops on Vasily Ostrov. 
It will end as they always end, said Vera. Some arrests and a few people beaten, and a policeman will get a medal. There was a long pause. I went to masquerade the other night, I said. I hear it's very good. Pretentious and rather vulgar, but amusing all the same. Everyone's talking about it and trying to get seats. Yes, my old must be pleased. They discuss it much more than they do the war, or even politics. Everyone's tired of the war. I said nothing. She continued. So I suppose we shall just go on for years and years. And then the Empress herself will be tired one day, and it will suddenly stop. She showed a flash of interest, turning to me and looking at me for the first time since I had come in. Ivan Andreevich, what do you stay in Russia for? Why don't you go back to England? I was taken by surprise. I stammered. Why do I stay? Why, because, because I like it. You can't like it. There's nothing to like in Russia. There's everything, I answered, and I have friends here. I added. But she didn't answer that, and continued to sit, staring out at the trees. We talked a little more about nothing at all, and then there was another long pause. At last I could endure it no longer. I jumped to my feet. Vera Mikhailovna, I cried. What have I done? Done? She asked me with a look of self-conscious surprise. What do you mean? You know what I mean well enough, I answered. I tried to speak firmly, but my voice trembled a little. You told me I was your friend. When I was ill the other day, you came to me and said that you needed help and that you wanted me to help you. I said that I would. I paused. Well, she said in a hard, unrelenting voice. Well, I hesitated and stammered, cursing myself for my miserable cowardice. You are in trouble now, Vera, great trouble. I came here because I am ready to do anything for you, anything. And you treat me like a stranger, almost like an enemy. I saw her lip tremble, only for an instant. She said nothing. If you've got anything against me since you saw me last, I went on, tell me and I'll go away. But I had to see you, and also Lawrence. At the mention of his name, her whole body quivered, but again only for an instant. Lawrence asked me to come and see you. She looked up at me then, gravely and coldly, and without the sign of any emotion, either in her face or voice. Thank you, Ivan Ivandrevich, but I want no help. I am in no trouble. It was very kind of Mr. Lawrence, but really... Then I could endure it no longer. I broke out. Vera, what's the matter? You know all this isn't true. I don't know what idea you have now in your head, but you must let me speak to you. I've got to tell you this that Lawrence must go back to England, and as soon as possible, and I will see that he does. That did its work. In an instant she was upon me like a wild beast, springing from her chair, standing close to me, her head flung back, her eyes furious. You wouldn't dare, she cried. It's none of your business, Ivan Indreevich. You say you're my friend. You're not. You're my enemy. My enemy. I don't care for him. Not in the very least. He is nothing to me. Nothing to me at all. But he mustn't go back to England. It will ruin his career. You will ruin him for life, Ivan Indreevich. What business is it of yours? You imagine because of what you fancied you saw at Nina's party. 
There was nothing at Nina's party, nothing. I love my husband, Ivan Andreevich, and you are my enemy if you say anything else. And you pretend to be his friend. But you are his enemy if you try to have him sent back to England. He must not go. For the matter of that, I will never see him again. Never, if that is what you want. See? I promise you, never, never. She suddenly broke down. She, Vera Mikhailovna, the proudest woman I had ever known, turning from me, her head in her hands, sobbing, her shoulders bent. I was most deeply moved. I could say nothing at first. Then, when the sound of her sobbing became unbearable to me, I murmured, Vera, please, I have no power. I can't make him go. I will only do what you wish. Vera, please, please. Then, with her back still turned to me, I heard her say, Please, go. I didn't mean... I didn't. But go now, and come back later. I waited a minute, and then, miserable... Terrified of the future, I went. End of chapter 3